So today we are going to be talking uh, a bit about unity and particularly we're going to be focusing on an example in the life of Jesus and how he helped to build unity and an example from the early church. We'll look at these two things. Unity is a vital topic and I think even more now perhaps than ever. Uh, not only in the world is it so, it's so significant, but also for us here because interestingly not only not only because of the things I mentioned earlier in the announcement, but also because this congregation is getting bigger. And that is a really good thing. It doesn't look like it today because everybody's on a holiday, I know. But when everybody's back from holiday, this place is pretty much every seat taken. Have you noticed? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much standing room at the back at the beginning of the service. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But what it means, it, amongst many things, one of the things it means is it means our unity becomes more challenging because our relationships are more spread across a larger number of people and significantly a wider geographical area. It's a lot easier practically to be unified with someone who lives on the next street than with somebody who lives 45 minutes drive away. And some of us live quite a lot more than that. I mean, Femi and Ify came in, you're coming in from Hatfield, right? How long were you on the bus today? Hour and a half? hour and a half on the bus to get here, which I commend you in the Lord. I, I, rather longer than it took me to get here. Uh, some of us could walk. Uh, you walked, didn't you, today? That's nice, all right? So, okay, so, but what I'm, what I'm saying here is I think if we don't pay attention to our unity, it won't necessarily be maintained well. It's something we need to put work into. And Jesus tells us that unity is important. And Paul talked about maintaining unity. It's something we must focus on hopefully in a good way. And I don't think in this church our unity is broken. So I'm not talking about this because I think we've got a crisis in this congregation, far from it. But since we're involved in some things between congregations and in some, on some level, it's also important that we pay attention to our own internal unity and what we can learn about that. So I've also put some things in the Watford Word about that. You can read that later. And today we're going to focus on one example from Jesus and one example from the early church and hopefully learn a few things along the way. So firstly, how important was unity to Jesus? John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, part of a longer prayer for unity uh, that Jesus offers, so this is only one part of it. Jesus said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. He's talking about his disciples. So I've given them, the disciples, the glory that the Father that you gave me. That's something I've uh, passed on to them. I've given them that glory that, that, that they may be one as we are one, the Father and Jesus. He wants that to be our experience together. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And that's the title of our series, Complete Unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So let me ask you, how important is unity to Jesus? Very. Very? On a level, I know, scale, one to ten. ten. Is it a ten? Yeah. And why does it matter? Why does it matter? Need to, need to be in agreement. Mm -hmm. I beg your pardon? So no one's left alone. 
Mm-hmm. Without unity, we will fall and fail. Without unity, we will fall and fail. Yes. Okay, it's evidence. Our unity is evidence to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. All right. It's a replication of what Jesus is to his Father. Okay, that we are to one another and in Christ, therefore, we are reflecting that relationship between Father and Son to the world, showing them what it means to be in a relationship with the Father. So disciples of Jesus. Yes, sorry, I can go ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, yes, two, two things. I think the university today, because the university was challenging today, yeah. you know, and um, it's, that comes in the modern world. If, you, if you're not united, if you're in a different place, it's easier to fight your spiritual battles together than it is separately. And I think Jesus, um, you know, in this last prayer, he's talking about bringing us all to God. Absolutely right. So, yes, Pat. So, if there's going to be unity, there has to be humility. So, without unity, it's more likely that pride and arrogance will get a foothold and maybe dominate. Right? Unity, you could say, is an antidote to pride. Maybe. True unity, heart, you know. Think about Jesus with the Father. How obedient was Jesus to the Father? 100%, right? It's my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 5, I think. So that humility, that submission to the will of the Father was to do with the love that they experienced and the desire to stay unified, to stay of one heart and one mind. So here's, here's the thing is... For us, you and me here, our unity is dependent on our, um, what's the right way to put this, the, the, the extent to which we are in Christ. We, we can't have this unity between Father and Son unless we're in Him. Then we get to share in that quality of unity. So being in Christ enables, it's not inevitable, but it enables the kind of unity He's talking about. And that's because it is focused on Jesus. Trying to be united with somebody on subjective issues, it's really hard, right? Political issues, sporting issues, cultural issues. It's very difficult because these things are are hard to, to nail down. But to be unified because we're in Christ, because we love him, he's our hero, that makes most other things relatively straightforward. So it's a bit like this. I have here... Take it out of its packaging. Who can tell me? There we go. Oh. Okay, you can tell me what this is. Tuning fork. What's it used for? Tuning forks. Right? No, okay. No, it, it's for tuning instruments, right? Now, this is old fashioned. These days, everybody has an app or something to tune instruments, right? But back in the day, this is what you had, right? And so you ding this against something, and then it gives me the, the note A, 440 hertz, is it? Okay, 440 hertz, says a knowledgeable scientist type person. Okay, so I can... Megahertz. No, that's an A, I can tell you, right? That's an A, and you can tune everything from that. And when I was first started leading singing, 
This is what we used to use. So you get an A, and then you'd work out the first note of the song. Okay, so A, A, G is the first note, so da, 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 and you start off the song, right? That's, that's how you do it. And indeed, you know, tuning all the instruments to the same frequency is very important. So if you're an orchestra or a band, you've all got to be tuned to in the same way. And you need something that is the objective truth of what the right note is. And this could be done in different ways, but you need somebody, and in an orchestra, who knows which instrument it is in an orchestra that usually sets the right, sets, sets it up, sets up the right note. It's not, a, it's not this. It's an oboe. Yes, it's the oboe. And there's various reasons for that, going back into history. I did read a blog post about it. I'll tell you more later, but I will not put that in the sermon. But uh, I find these things very interesting, being a musician. But anyway, it's usually the oboe, it's a nice pure sound, and the rest of the orchestra tune themselves to that one oboe, that one instrument. Then you create something beautiful together. The beauty of a band, or the beauty of an orchestra, or a string quartet, or whatever it is, the beautiful sound, the harmony that exists, is because they're all tuned to the same basic um, core note or sound. And it's the same with a Christian fellowship. We create something beautiful not because we're beautiful. We create something beautiful not because we've got all the right answers. We create something beautiful not because we are sinless and perfect, ideal Christians if only the world was just like us. We don't create something beautiful because we've got all the right teachings and doctrines and we know the Bible backwards and we know all the songs. And we don't create something beautiful just because we turn up every week. We don't create something beautiful just because we pray. Ultimately, the beauty of what we create and show to this world is dependent on how well we are personally and then collectively at helping each other to stay focused on Jesus. And that's a very easy thing to say, but life tends to get in the way of that. And personalities tend to get in the way because we all have our preferred ways of doing church, doing Christianity, and doing the way that we think is the right way for things to be done. And these things can be creative. Our differences can be interesting and creative and help us to think differently, or they can be, they can be cracks that create division between us. And those cracks appear when we take our eyes off Jesus and forget that it's him that we're united with. Being united with one another is a byproduct of being united with Jesus. Hopefully in a band, the violins and the clarinets and the trumpets are all united, but it's only because they're united to the right frequency, megahertz or hertz, whatever they, they are, right? So this is what we need. Now I'm saying something that I don't think most of us would uh, think was rather strange or, or whatever, but it's so important. It's a function of love in many ways. Jesus said to his disciples, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we put John 13 together with John 17. Jesus prays for complete unity. But what does complete unity look like? It looks like this, doesn't it? It looks like a community deeply loving one another like Jesus loved his disciples. That's the practical outworking of unity. Well, that's the way it's expressed, I suppose. It's that depth of love. And the key thing I think, as my only really main point here today, not complicated, is this. The greatest threat to unity within any group 
is when we fail to love each other in a Christ-like way. That's the threat. The greatest threat is when we stop loving each other like Jesus loved his disciples. So we're going to look at an example of Jesus dealing with something rather like this. So let me take you now to how Jesus maintained unity. There's a lot we could talk about, but I'm just going to give you one example so it's not overwhelming. You can remember one. I can remember one. So back in Mark chapter 9, we have an incident with Jesus and his disciples. They're on the road uh, doing their wandering ministry as uh, as they do. And let's have a look at this and see what we might learn from it. So I'm going to ask you what you see in this passage uh, that is connected to maintaining unity. So Mark 9, and in verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, that's Jesus, he asked them, his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Hmm. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Interesting, isn't it? What's going on here? So they've been walking around. And what has Jesus noticed? He's noticed they're arguing. So what we know from this is that Jesus is paying attention to the relationship dynamic in his friends, amongst his friends. He's paying attention. So in other words, they're all walking along the road, and Jesus Jesus is walking along with the disciples, and he's not checking TikTok or Twitter while he's with his mates. He's not distracted from the people he's with. He's paying attention. What do you notice about the way that he dealt with this situation arguing amongst themselves. What do you notice by the way he dealt with it? So he teaches them. All right. He does some teaching. Yeah. All right. Doesn't back beat, doesn't beat about the bush. He gets straight into it. What were you arguing about? Right. He's not saying, Peter, you should know better. It's the group. Okay. It's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Very good point. What else do we notice? Yeah, isn't that great? There's curiosity here. What were you arguing about? What kind of what's going on? Tell me what's going on. Yeah, curiosity. Very good. What else? Sarah? He sits down. With them. Yeah. He sits down and calls the 12 over. Presumably they they sit around with him, which would be a normal teaching situation for a rabbi of the time. So he involves them together with him. He's not standing over them. Hmm. Anything else? Akin. The fact that he makes, he makes, makes the mission, right? He, he doesn't just say, oh yeah, you guys are acting, that's fine, let's move on. He actually says, 
there's some problems with the reactive base or acid of anaphylaxis. We have chemical decided to differentiate that they get to have that. Yes, he takes it seriously. He and he doesn't just treat it in a shallow way. Ah, stop arguing. That's not the right thing to do. Just stop it. A bit like sometimes, let's face it, parents, sometimes we can be a little bit direct, uh, not direct, a little bit shallow with our own children sometimes, like stop moaning and then we move on. Not really figuring out what's going on. Anyway, that's a different point. Um, anything else? I think it was interesting in how they felt as individuals. Wanted to understand the feelings, what's going on inside, what's going on for them personally. You know, I think there's a lot to learn from this example. I've I studied this a few years ago, and it's helped me a lot in dealing with tense situations when I'm with friends. Um, I'm not saying everything about conflict and resolution is in this one passage, but I do like the way that Jesus deals with it. It's really uh, healthy. A few things I picked out. Firstly, he's observant. He notices the arguing. I mean, that's a really important thing for us to do, is to notice. Secondly, he waited for the right time and place. You notice he doesn't do it out on the road. He doesn't do it while they're arguing. He doesn't stop them and says, hang on, hang on, hang on. What are you doing arguing? Maybe there was a crowd around, or maybe he didn't want to embarrass them, or maybe he just knew that in a group, a crowd situation, they wouldn't be able to in, um, interact with him in a healthy way. Maybe they wouldn't be honest with a crowd around. I don't know. But he waited the right time and place. When they arrived... Then he says, in the house, he says, in a safe place, I think, we might call it. He asked a question, that was your point about curiosity. Uh, he allowed silence. Do you notice? Uh, they, uh, the, 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 oh, it's not in that passage. Oh, it's in a parallel. Oh, no, they kept quiet. Sorry, what were you arguing about? They kept quiet. That means he paused long enough for there to be silence. He's like, what were you arguing about? They're all looking at the floor. <laughs> must, be, must be time to go somewhere soon. And he allows the silence. Uh, he talked with compassion. I think, you know, this is not a heavy thing. Like, what were you thinking, you stupid disciples? I don't know why I put up with you. What on earth did I recruit you for? I'm going to get some new ones. He's, he's compassionate. He teaches them with, a, with a, an illustration. And he reminds them that it's all really about him. It's about welcoming him. I love this. I think it's fantastic. And it's really important that we pay attention to this kind of dynamics if we're going to have unity in our own families and in this spiritual family. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we not long started as a Watford Fellowship back in the day, and there were maybe, uh, I think, 16 of us when we started out. Uh, we were meeting over at Lawrence Haynes School. And we had, uh, it was all sort of new and uh, we had our leadership team, and I remember we met at Charlotte Bromin's house one evening. Um, that behold, before all the work was done on their house, so it's going back a while. And Penny and myself, and Charlotte Bromin and Danny and Becky, we met there one evening. And I had an agenda; I had it printed out because I, I wanted to do this properly, you know. So I had a printed out agenda for our leadership meeting. It was add color on it as well. And uh, we we met up, and I don't remember the details, but I remember the feeling, and this is why I'm sharing this with you because I remember there was some tension in our group. And it was really between me and Bronwyn. And I don't remember what it was about. I mean, Charles might remember or Bronwyn might remember. I don't know what it was about, but there was definitely some tension. And we sat down and I was like, right, you know, let's get on with this. Got my agenda, things we need to talk about, leadership team, let's do it properly, you know. And I think it was Charles who said, mm, I think we need to talk first. We, because something's not right. 
And if, if we don't, if we're not, if we're not okay, there's no point in talking about church stuff. And so we talked, and I think we resolved it. No, we did. And I don't remember the details. This is the thing. It's several years ago. It must be, it's probably around 2015, 16. So it's a long time ago. But I remember that feeling of, you know what? There are some things that are more important than what we kind of functionally do. And our relationships really matter. I was really grateful for Charles pointing that out because he had noticed something I felt but didn't want to deal with. It's a bit like what Jesus does here. Maybe the other disciples aren't happy they're arguing. It's not much fun arguing, unless you win. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's not, that, that dynamic is never good. But it needs somebody to say, hmm, let's stop. And so I share this to say, look, if, if we feel like there's tension in any of our relationships, it's something to pay attention to. Maybe we need patience and time and prayer. Maybe we need somebody else to help us. Those things are possible. But if there's something causing tension that creates disunity, it must be paid attention to. And it's never over. One, I just briefly mentioned this. You don't have to read the whole passage there. But in, in Mark chapter 10, just after this, right, they've just had this situation resolved by Jesus. And he's just taught them about being the, the last is first and all that kind of stuff. And then in Mark chapter 10, we find James and John asking Jesus if they can sit at his right and his left hand. They want to be second in command and third in command. It's like, don't they remember what Jesus was just telling them? I mean, it's amazing how quickly we can slip from things that we've learned as people who follow Jesus. And he calls them together and does something similar to what he did before and says, look, it's not like the world is like that. This is our relationships. The way we function is not like that. So the point here is simply that Unity is never finished. Maybe we're reasonably unified, but it needs maintaining. That's why it says that in the book of Philippians. So are there any tensions? Are there any ungodly attitudes or behavior that you've noticed that could do with a conversation? That's a healthy church. Not one where we judge each other, but one where we notice things and talk about them. Unity is not maintained by harshness, but it is also not maintained by silence. Unity is maintained by listening, loving, and talking. That's the example of Jesus. Let me give you a brief example from the early church just to, see, just to see how they dealt with things after Jesus physically was no longer with them. So in Acts chapter 6, what's the problem in Acts 6? We know this, right? What's the problem in the beginning of Acts chapter 6? Okay, there's issues about serving the poor. Congregational poor. People that are poor in the church. So. Hand up. It looks like beginnings of discrimination. Or feeling. So people being overlooked or feeling they're being overlooked. So you've got some Grecian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why are we different? People being overlooked. So you've got these Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews and the distribution of aid to help these poor Christians is not equal between the two groups, or at least it doesn't appear to be equal. And so the 12, that's the apostles, gather the disciples together. We've got to sort this out. We can't let this become a, 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 a source of disunity. It wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word 
to wait on tables. So choose seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll give that responsibility to them. The proposal pleased the whole group. They choose Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. They present them to the apostles. They pray and lay their hands on them. And this is so the word of the Lord of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so what do you notice about the way this was handled that promoted unity? What is it about the way this is dealt with that promotes unity between these two groups, and I suppose really for the whole church in Jerusalem at that time? This is very early on in the life of the church. So what's, what happens here that helps to promote unity and prevents disunity? What do you see? Nobody was chosen from within the twelve. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The problem was sorry. Acknowledged. The problem was acknowledged. It wasn't dismissed. Like it doesn't matter. Yes, it's not that big a deal. Go sort it out. Mm. Yeah, it was acknowledged. It was open to everybody to take that opportunity to start. So everybody felt they had a stake in it. Everybody in the church was involved on some level. They all knew that the challenge was there. They were invited in to help find a solution and provide a solution. Yeah, congregational involvement. Hmm. Anything else? Looks like it's a mixed group. I know that was Jewish, so I guess mm -hmm. it's balanced. Um, and who was the representation from? Yeah, we don't know much about them. But what we do know is that they were known to be full of the full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So there are obviously different kinds of people involved, but they had that in common. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Everybody has a role to play. That's a very good point. And we, it's not like everybody does everything, or one or two people do everything. It's spread around, yes. It's interesting that this is coming face with a very basic and interesting task. <coughs> and yet, they've been asked to A, do quite a lot of it, but seven people to a lot of people. And they've been told to look at them as full of spirit and wisdom. It's not like choose a group of murders and stuff, or choose one person to count everyone. It's a really spiritual, spiritual task. That's a really good point. There's a lot of people involved to, to help solve the situation. And the key quality is not that they're good at admin. 
or food bank administration, which is sort of what this is in a way, right? <laughs> they are meant to be meant to be full of the Holy Spirit and and faith or wisdom. Yeah. The women are involved in the decision. The women are involved in the decision. Uh, it, it's a church congregational problem. It's not just a women's problem. And the solution is not just a man's solution, like is often the case in some situations, but it's a whole church men and women's solution on some level. That's at least implied. Yes. Yeah. Curious as to why they mentioned Nicholas from Antioch from her to do this. Why is it mentioned? I don't just say Nicholas. There must be a reason. Well, probably because there's more than one Nicholas, right? You often you see this in the scriptures a few times when it'll say somebody and give you an extra bit about them or their name because there's another one that's well known. It's like Joseph of Arimathea. Why do we have Joseph of Arimathea? Probably because there's other Josephs that were well known, something like that. So probably that. So you would have been a Gentile, not converted to being Jewish, yeah, and then became Christian. Yeah, <laughs> he had quite a journey. He had a journey. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's a knock-on effect. And I don't think it's an accident that Luke has recorded the fact that the church grew significantly after this was sorted out. And I don't think it's a direct connection. I think it's a spiritual connection. I think there's, there's something going on there. Let's, let's wrap this up because we've got time. Yep. Seven, yeah, perfect number. The perfect number. I'm sure that's why they chose, chose seven. I would imagine... The surface, the issue, people listened, the leadership listened, and the congregation got involved. The leadership understood their limitations. They involved others. There was discussion, and there was prayer involved. You know, when we have a, a unity issue, that's not a bad sort of framework for sorting it out, is it? Uh, I would say. So we all need to be tuned to Jesus. Tuned to him, and other things will get worked out. It's all about him. We're going to take bread and wine now at the conclusion of this lesson because this is what unifies us. <laughs> it is being around, if you like, the table, the table of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read this passage. You probably can't read it up there, but I'm going to read it for us because I think it, it speaks well to what we've been talking about, about unity and about the point of the cross. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope. This is us. We were without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, and the you there is plural in the Greek, right? So he's talking to the church, not just individuals. You, who were once far away from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's made the two groups one 
has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. He's talking about unity here. Peace is an expression of unity, or it happens when we have unity. Making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you who are near. For through him, through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Consequently, you, plural again, us here, you, us, we are no longer foreigners and aliens or strangers. We are fellow citizens with God's people members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is talking about the church. The building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God will live where there is peace. He will live where there is unity. He will live where there is a Christ-like love. That's what we're, I hope and pray, trying to build here, trying to make sure that we honor what Jesus prayed for when he prayed that his disciples would have complete unity. And some of that is about resolving our uh, tensions between us. Some of that is about resolving church issues that come up. Let's deal with them in a Christ-like way, inspired by the early church. And with our eyes always on the tuning fork of our faith, Jesus himself. We're going to pray now before we take bread and wine.